Hello, everybody, and welcome to Poplar PropCast. Today, we have a very special edition because, uh, as you know, I, your wonderful host, Justin Libernet, have been very lucky in my uh, personal home ownership journey, and I thought I'd bring on the people that kind of set the stage for that. So we're going to be talking to my parents, Raleigh Libernet and Pamela Libernet. Everybody say hi. 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 <laughs> They're very thrilled. They love it <laughs> to get involved in my work. <laughs> Um, but the reason I brought him on is because I really want to talk about how generational wealth is really built through holding on to properties. And that's one of the strongest ways to build wealth. And in that capacity, we're going to talk through my family's history with property. <clears throat> and so my mom grew up in San Diego and her house on Quicker Road. Um, when did your parents buy that? When my did grandma and grandpa Mom and dad one? bought the house in 1959. And uh, lived in it until 1975. And then they sold that and bought a mobile home because of dad's health. Yeah. And that was because of, of the prices so that they could afford to deal with all his health issues? Yes. Okay. So when they bought it, did they buy on the GI Bill? Yes. They okay. bought it on the GI Bill. I believe the cost of the house at that time was $12,000. $12,000. And just for frame, Quicker Road is in East County, San Diego. So it was a $12,000 house in San Diego in 1959. A half acre. A half acre. A half acre. And you had a horse there. I had a horse there. Yeah. So you were able to put that all together and be able to have a horse on your half acre. Yes, we were. And we had a garden. And and then that, that transition for uh, my grandparents into the mobile home was a really good move for them. And they helped manage it. And I'd go over as a family, we'd read meters and tell people how much they owed on gas and electric. When I was like seven years old, I was a meter reader. Yes, you were. Yeah. And that portion of the economy worked really well back then. It was a much smaller scale operations for mobile home parks where you really did buy the mobile home, the dirt was cheap, and then you paid gas and electric. Right, right. Space rent, gas and electric. Yeah. And because they worked the mobile home, worked in the park, they didn't have to pay their space rent, which was good because they had, you know, they didn't really have, he would, my dad was independently employed. So all they had was social security. There were no 401ks. Yeah. Everything was cash. Yeah. And so it used to be a really, really economical way to kind of have a low overhead home and then very little recurrent costs. The main recurrent cost was gas and electric. Correct. That's changed now, but that was really beneficial for them. Um, and then on the other side, my dad was born in Iowa, and he was your family rented in Iowa, right? Yes. Dad rented until he bought a home in Southern California in 63. And in 63, he ended up in California from Iowa because of work. Yes. Kind of chasing jobs. He was chasing a job. There were no jobs. He got laid off in Iowa, and the only place he could find work was in California, which was booming in the early 60s. Yeah. And at this point in time, where they bought a house... Which again, this is El Cajon. My parents end up meeting because of the proximity of their properties where they were living. And that area was nothing. There was no freeway through it. There was a two-lane highway. Yeah, the freeway stopped at Pam's house over <laughs> on Quicker. And there was nothing east of there except old Highway 8. Yeah, and that went out into the desert and turned into a dirt road. Yep, and then, uh, literally a plank road across the desert. Plank road. Did you drive that one? No, I, I oh. just saw remnants of it the, what, that was left. That's pretty I, cool. Yeah. So at this point, so when my grandfather bought his first house, 
had he locked down the job yet? Was he working currently employed? <laughs> yes, he was working. But the only reason we came to San Diego is he actually had a job in the Los Angeles area. I want to say Compton. And that job was given to the guy that worked in San Diego. Therefore, when he got to San, I mean, Los Angeles, Compton area, he went to San Diego and took that guy's job. Thank goodness. <laughs> and that's how. And then he was visiting a friend in El Cajon. And the guy said, where are you going to live, Duke? And he goes, I have no idea. And we were sitting in Los Angeles with family. The guy said, well, they're building homes about two blocks up the street. And he went up there, looked at them literally on a piece of paper because they were cutting the pads with a grader. And they go, you can move in for a dollar because you're a vet. And he, went, he looked at the map and said, that's got the biggest yard. I have four kids. That's the one I want. Yeah. And he watched it go up. <laughs> so that house bought for a dollar was originally, was it in the neighborhood $12,000 or was it? fifteen five? Fifteen five. So we've got two properties in the edge of the world at that point in time, the edge of the world, San Diego, that are 12000 15000 in the 60s. Mm-hmm. And that's... Uh, that's that's a that's a piece of property that really changes the dynamics over the years, and I think both of them um, had a footing there. But in particular, I want to talk about um, the the property, not my mom, my mom's parents, but my dad's parents, because that one's still in the family. So as we go through this, one of the things I want you as a listener to focus on is how effective generational wealth can be built through property, and how much of an effective way it is to build long term returns and stability for your family, because if you've been listening to the podcast, you know that I now live in Vegas. And part of the reason I live in Vegas is the cost pressures related to San Diego. They got to a point where for me to come back and really settle in the amount of money I'd have to make it a job was more difficult to find in San Diego than in Las Vegas. And so as you kind of transition through those things, keep an ear open for that. Cause that's kind of the part we're going to be talking about. So dad, you guys grow up in that house and I grew up in that house. Yes. We, we were there every Sunday, every Sunday, <laughs> every Sunday. And my dad is one of four and they all got married and they all had at least two kids. Uh, some have three, some, yeah, three's the most. Mm-hmm. Um, Uncle Scott. Uncle Scott and uh, JJ both have three kids. Mm-hmm. And then my aunt Penny has two and then there's myself and my sister. So heard of kids, probably all within a five to 10 year age band. Some of us were a year apart. So we grew up like brothers and sisters in this house. And over the years, my grandparents, as they kind of, they had some of the same difficulties that my, my mom's dad did. My, they, both of my grandfathers died within about a year of each other and they had pancreatic cancer and a bunch of other complications. It just kind of, they lived hard. They went through World War II. They drank and smoked and they lived hard. Both of them came from farms and my grandpa on my mom's side was a truck driver. He moved people's stuff all over the country. So he'd disappear for months at a time and then come back. So when that happened and then when that kind of put them in a place, do you mind talking about like the financial tightness of the property and how that kind of rolled through? No, that's uh, your dad was able to make ends meet and barely mom took on ironing in order to make ends meet, but they were able to stay in the home. Uh, it was a real difficult thing for them to climb that hill. 
Um, but they were able to do it. And they finally paid it off. Dad died before it got paid off. But then, you know, finished up, got the house paid for. Mom was able to stay in it because of Prop 13. If your listeners know what that is, they can look that up, I guess, somewhere else. But uh, that Prop 13, we're still taking advantage of. Uh, At that point, when mom passed, uh, I bought out my siblings. And my goal was thinking about you and your sister and where you were going to be and visualizing you don't sell dirt. And so we made Pam and I decided that we yeah okay we're gonna stop a minute because my mom's laughing right now because this was something we had to kind of convince her of and part of that is the reason we were able my dad and mom were able to buy out his siblings is because of my mom's frugality mom do you want to talk about how you budget yeah it don't spend more than you have no, that, she that, does a great job and, so that's and pay yourself so when you're paying your bills you pay all your bills first that you have to pay Make sure your family's fed and taken care of and pay yourself. And don't month. let your husband do it. And <laughs> one person <laughs> needs to be in charge of the budget. You can't both be in charge of the budget. And it worked out. And because of that, we were able to help out his mom and mm-hmm. help pay off the house. And the siblings understood we were helping. So they we kept track of how much money we spent on the house. So when the they decided to um, look at buying out, buying them out. We subtracted the amount that we had already put towards the house and helping mom. Which and allowed us it, to do that because which, we had been paying, it's a bit like making payments all the way along. Right? Yeah. So with helping mom. When we were able to buy the house, we were able to get it for quite a bit less than the value because of how much we had already put into it. Yeah. So let's talk about budgeting a minute more because as I'm, as the listeners of this podcast, I'm sure are exposed to bigger pockets, which is a very leveraged investing community where they, they take on debt to acquire, um, extra homes. So five, 10, 15. And then we had, we talked to uh, Mitch last week from solutions for real estate, and he's very much in the pay it off for future cash flow. He looks at properties like 401ks where you want to get them down so that they're just in 20 years, they're all you're relying on. Now you did something different while we were growing up. And that was when you got an increase in salary or when you'd paid off a recurring bill, what would you do the following month? Oh, when, when we paid off the house, she didn't tell me I kept, (laughs) well, we did at one point we did we only refinanced once, but then what we did was we doubled the amount we paid because I had gotten, uh, we both were working at the time. Then we both got master's degrees and were able to go up in salary. So that extra money went in the bank and went towards the house so that the house was paid off. I believe we paid it off after 22 years rather than the 30. Um, and that allowed us to still put that money every month in the bank so that we had the money to pay for college for our daughter and son and take care of anything else that came so there's, up. So there's a little piece of this that I don't know if the listeners at home are getting clear. Will you talk about like the car payments and when you finish making a, a car payment and the car's paid off, what do you do with that car payment? You keep putting it in That's the bank. That's what I was after. Yep. You use it, you pretend that it's still there. 
Like you still have the payment. Like you still have a payment. You've been yeah. paying it and it's not hurt you. You keep paying it. And then when something big comes along, um, you have the money to go do that. Yeah. So this is, this is a different one than I think you're going to hear from either bigger pockets or from Mitch. Part of what Mitch did with his properties is similar to what you guys do with yours is you kind of, for him, he snowballs them. He's like, which one do I have the smallest mortgage on? I'm going to pay an extra thousand dollars for that. When that's paid off, we take all those payments, put them in the next one. But one of the things you do is in addition to when you get a raise, you increase your payments on the house. When you finish paying stuff off, you keep making the payment and not to a 401k or a stock account, literally just in the bank. Well, just and move we, it to a different account and right. ignore and then, it. And when we did have a TSA, which we also paid into, that was paying ourselves. We paid a TSA from the time when we barely could afford it. And it was like $50 a month back in the 70s. We could barely afford it, but we still put it in TSA. And now we have a quite substantial TSA that we've been paying, that we paid into our entire working life So on top of the house. Yeah. So, so at this point, as we think about that first property, that first property was almost bought in poverty. Like it was, yeah. There was being able to do a dollar down, move in, and then barely That's the make only reason we got in. Yeah. Is one of the huge benefits post-World War II that increased the number of homeowners across the country and just started this generational wealth. And I think we'd be remiss if we didn't mention that in the background, keep in your mind that a lot of these programs weren't necessarily available to African-American servicemen. The same didn't apply. And so this... This community that I grew up in and that my parents grew up in was predominantly white in East County, San Diego. So that's something just to keep in the back of your mind. We're not going to harp on that too much, but I, it's something that should be called out. Every time we mention post-World War II, people bought houses for a dollar. White people bought houses for a dollar. That's right. Yeah. Just Okay, so staying on that property, uh, one of the other things that happened with it is that Grandma came into a bit of money and then we were able to renovate the house and make it more comfortable her for her. Cause even in East County, San Diego, it gets colder and it gets hotter. Not as bad as cold in the Northeast or hot in the desert. Yeah. But if you can regulate that and insulate the walls, you're in good shape. The property though, when we started doing stuff to it, to make it nicer, like putting insulation in the walls, it was balloon framed. It had studs around the outside, a roof on top, and then it had just divider walls all through it. That didn't have and, wood in them. And the divider walls, instead of studs, had stacks of drywall that were the two-by-fours. So it maybe was worth about a dollar as a house, but it, you know, they threw them up and they could sell them and they made their money and they moved on. And if you built it now, it would be built differently. But that money that she came into and allowed her to make the house more comfortable for her also increases the house's value. Um, the period of time at the end of my grandmother's life, she needed hospice care and she needed help. And she, she spent quite a bit of time in a home and that was a challenging period just emotionally, but financially two things happened. One, my parents with the way that my mom budget were able to help support and take care of my grandma there. And then the other one is that while she was in there, we had the house available to rent. We didn't sell it. We had it and we were able to rent it. And something that we've talked about on here before is that that's one of the things that 
as an accidental or incidental homeowner, spare homeowner specifically, it's a really strong way to be able to support people in the family that are going through the end of life care. And being able to do one of two things. You can either sell the house and then you have a limited amount of money that you're going to be able to pay for care with. And if they need more care than that, there's no other place to pull it from except private money, debt, and trying to take care of that, which, which is really not helpful for that period of time, especially with all the emotional baggage. The other thing, though, is if you find somebody to manage it and rent it and don't have to think about the house, you then have something that defrays the costs of care indefinitely. And then if you have a giant bill come due, you still have the house that you can leverage as an asset. So I, I think it's a, a very strong proposition when something happens to kind of pivot that home to be the supporting structure for that end of life care. Um, yeah, do you guys want to throw in on that at all? Or? Well, it made it really nice that renting the house made it easier to take care of mom in a home because homes are really expensive and we did not want to put her in um, Medicare type, what Medicare could afford because it would have, those facilities just aren't nice. And so we put her in a, in a nice home where there were very few, I think there were six people there and they had round the clock care and they were taken out on the sun deck and we could go visit her and, the, and my husband and his sister both took turns feeding her breakfast and lunch and dinner and took turns being with her. And so she had a very nice place to be at the end. And because the money from rent was coming in and she had, there was a little bit of money, we were able to afford it without selling the house and it could be as long as it needed to be. It was, um, turned out to be a year and a half, but at $5,000 a month, that's a lot. Yeah. And having the rent helped a lot. Yeah. So moving forward a little bit, now it's rented to different tenants and the tenant that it's rented to is actually my grandmother's next door neighbor's daughter. So it's somebody <laughs> that I went to high school with and is now able to live next door to her mother. Can you talk about the, the property management kind of part that you guys do, like how you take care of the property? Cause you guys are hands-on <laughs> direct involved and you can be, you can, Hold back as much as you want, or however you no, want to talk I, about it. No, we have excellent renters. Jamie takes care of stuff, calls Raleigh whenever she needs something fixed. And because Raleigh has built houses before and knows a lot about construction, usually he can go over and fix it or talk her through what needs to be done. Um, so it, if, for us, having her as a tenant has been really nice because we've kept the same... Uh, rental fee, but she takes care of a lot of stuff and we can fix what needs to be fixed. I don't know what would happen if we go to another renter, then we'd have to look at a different plan. Well, she's been great. There's no two ways about it. When she first moved in, I fix a few things, but as she was there longer, she knows people because I'm getting older. My guys are all getting old and they hurt all their joints are you screwed up the guys that I built houses with and her friends are younger and they'll come over and fix things and she would just deduct it from the rent which is great and then she started doing some things alone I mean she takes care of the house like it was hers 
Yeah. And that's great. You don't find renters like that. Although your grandfather was that way. When you said he rented, he built on a whole room for one guy that he was renting from. And that's the kind of renter we happen to luck into and find. Um, Pam wasn't thrilled about taking on a renter that uh, it was. We were very fortunate to find Jamie so that I have a happy household. (laughs) 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 And she appreciates Jamie being on time, but we worked together. She went through a rough time. We lowered the rent for a, a period of time just to meet our bills. And so she could stay there. And then as soon as things were better for her, she paid us all the back rent. And it's been, that was a year or two ago. Yeah. And now it's been She's lived there right four on time. years now. Yeah. So right in the middle, there was a little rough patch, but we can work with her because we're, I think, on a different level than most landlord renters. No, I know. I wouldn't, because I watched her grow up. I knew when she was born. Yeah. I, re- I went to high school with her mom. Yeah. So that's very unique, I think. Yeah. It's, it's something that as, and we'll, we'll talk about my landlord experiences too later, but it's, it's one of the challenges finding tenants that fit and that work. And it's one of the things where if you get lucky and you have that tenant, it's so worth accommodations to hold on to. It's so worth modifying things so you don't have to go, okay, well, we're going to have to evict you or you're going to have to get out. And then you have to go through that process. Then you have to take 30 days to fix the property and then another 15 to 20 days to rent it. And that whole period of time, it just eats into whatever capital reserves you have, which is. And I would have all awful. the emotions to t- have to yeah. take care of at my household. Yeah. That <laughs> <laughs> so Jamie's great. Jamie's great. <laughs> the, uh, the, the piece that my mom was mentioning and my dad did too about my dad building houses. We're going to come into a minute because now we're going to transition and we're going to talk about my parents' first house, which they bought in 1976. Yeah, 76. January 24th, 1976, (laughs) we moved in. So it was, you were pregnant at the time. Uh Uh-huh. Yep, with my sister. um, And they were living in an apartment with all their boxes on one wall because they were not staying there. (laughs) Not any longer than we absolutely had to. And how'd you find that first property? Oh my gosh. We could afford it. That was, it. That was the only qualifier. Our, our, our guideline was we, we could afford $35,000. $35,000 our That was the max. max we could afford. And we looked and looked and looked. And we saw this one property. The electricity wasn't on. It had been a divorce settlement. We walked through it in the dark. Flashlights. With flashlights. <laughs> but it was $35,000. And it was four bedrooms, two baths with a decent sized lot because they had to blast because of decomposed granite. So they had to blast between houses and to build the pads. So we had quite a bit of space. So we kind of in the dark lucked into this house at 35,000, which meant at that time, the interest was 8%. And so we are net every month was 770 and the house payment was 370. Oh, yeah. So that Oof. was that we was. Were house you guys, for a long you guys time. being sad about five percent, six percent should not be sad about five or six percent. It's. It was, I mean, at least you guys didn't buy in the eighties. No, true. There was that period That's, of time where it was 13 fourteen percent. Which, it, from our perspective, 
that's a biggie that we got in as soon as we could. Yeah. We got married and we had to live in an apartment. And our goal, the whole, was it six months or so that year we lived? Year and a half. Dude. Year and a half? Oh, well, time in- flies even then. <laughs> um, it, yeah, the goal was to get into a house as soon as possible okay. because we were looking at the big picture. Yeah. So that being said, so now you guys recognize kind of how tight the money was for my parents when they were in that first home. It was right at the edge. They were house poor. They knew they were in a house poor. They took that leap and said, we're not renting. We want the room. We want the space. We want the lot. Let's get and it. the investment. And it was really in the back of my head. It was long-term. Got to get your hands on something now. So my dad is not a house builder. My grandfather was not a house builder. Although, like my dad said, my grandfather put a room addition on a rental. And my dad's always been handy and fixed stuff. You fixed bikes when you were a kid. and Yeah, built my own skateboards. You know, yeah, all that, that kind of stuff. The fence around my dad's house out of pallets. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Let's talk about Prop 13 and summer jobs. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so my parents are both teachers. They're, they're not house builders. They're teachers. My dad taught high school math, and my mom taught every elementary grade. From K to five, or did you teach six too? K to five. K to five. Um, so th- they've done that. They're retired now. They've both taught for over 30 years, just forever in the industry. But when my dad started, once you did Prop 13 pass the same year that you got your contract? Uh, it was uh, a year or two later. It and was four I years had, later. Okay. It, and I had rookie teacher, didn't have a clue what the heck was going on, and I didn't know how great it was. They were a, there was all kinds of money. But the reason there were all kinds of money is that it was funded on property taxes. And property taxes at that time, California was booming. The value of homes, like we were looking and we couldn't keep up with it. So we had to just dive in because the property values were skyrocketing. And that was pushing people out of their homes. Old people were literally getting put on the street at that time because they couldn't pay their property taxes as it went up and up. So, uh, so there's Howard people that Jarvis had paid off their homes, and now they had a property tax payment. I'm not sure because it was I was so young in the 70s. In the 70s, I just know that the big motivation for Howard Jarvis to pass this was that you know people are losing their homes, yeah, because of property taxes, and they capped it and that was prop 13 because i'm sure a lot of your listeners have no clue what it is people i talk to they know it exists but not why and we were caught right well not caught we as being a teacher at the time i was a little torqued that we were going to lose all that money and then all of a sudden i realized later i shouldn't say all of a sudden later i realized it was the greatest thing that happened to our family because them capping that at is it one percent? You yeah. I, my wife nodded. So I so I'm, that's an increase of at max one percent year over a year. Yeah, that it can raise and, it, and and that's not a whole percentage point. That's against the existing percentage you're taxed. Yes. So if you're paying five percent this year, the most it can go up next year is to five point oh five. Yeah, I think so because that's a percent. There I believe you go. that's how it works. Unless, it's not unless a full there's percent. work on it, and then it's reassessed. Reassessed, right? Yeah. But if you don't do anything to your house, that house, the property uh, that my parents bought, the taxes on it are still under $1,000, right, honey? Yes. To this day. Yeah. And that's what I pay on a house that's worth $800,000 is less than a grand. 
because of Prop 13. But I've owned that home yeah. it's for how many years? I'm a math teacher. I can figure that out. 60. 60 years that that's been in the family. Yeah. And that's why. And even on our own home, it's still low. And the reason that it's still that low is that can it be transferred? That's why I said it was popular for our yeah. family. Yeah. So that kept my mom in her house. That w- allowed us to have that property for all this time. And then what did it make you do in the summertime? Like how did that affect your job and your well, contract? Prop, <laughs> Prop 13, that it taught me to budget, taught us to budget. And uh, because I was always teaching summer school. And then when Prop 13 passed, school districts didn't know what was going to happen with the budget because they were going to lose all kinds of money. And, and so they canceled summer school. And as a rookie teacher, you were always able to get summer school. And like any other job, and like my dad did forever, you work paycheck to paycheck. And we spent all our money, at least in my mind. I don't, I'm not <laughs> sure what we were really doing. My wife knows. But anyway, we spent a lot of the money. And I had to work summer school all the time, which was just what I was going to do forever. Yeah, because you figure that's like a year-round job. Year-round job. And at that but, point, we were so small. Mm-hmm. You were kiddos. Well, Jesse. Uh, Jesse was. I don't think I was yeah, there Yeah, you yet. weren't around yet. Was, was, Prop, <laughs> was Prop 13 78 or 79? 77. 77. 77. Okay. I yeah. believe and then it in, was went into effect 78. Okay. And so all of a sudden, I didn't have a job. And construction was booming. So I literally went to a friend and said, look... I got laid off. That was one of the few years, or I think it's the only time in the state of California that teachers could collect unemployment. <laughs> and all the teachers went and collected unemployment that lost their summer school job. Plus, I went and worked, uh, well, it's been long enough I can say this. I worked construction under the table for with a friend. And I literally went to him and said, hey, I'm out of a job. I got a little kid. I need some work. And I dug ditches for concrete. And... In a way, I learned concrete, and then all of a sudden, I started picking up all this skills that I could then use on you our framed, homes. You laid sod. Yeah, you... the, yeah, framing, <laughs> landscaping, uh, drywall. I did yeah, drywall, drywall with Gotch. You know, I'm, <laughs> you know, I, anything that would pay me a little money to get through that summer. Yeah, I did, and it paid. That even paid off in the long run. But uh, that taught us that. And it set the base for living within your means because we took my 10-month salary and we budgeted over 12. And we just cut back. I don't think we had a new car until the Aerostar. When was that? And that was a lease. And that was a lease, but we bought it out at the end. But yeah, that was a lease so we could afford it. You know, we... Oh my gosh, we had some crazy cars. But that's a different (laughs) podcast. Um... Yeah, mom didn't have a new car. She had that Aerostar and her mm-hmm. new Jeep. But anyway, uh, and you have the Opal, <laughs> the yep. only one I've yeah, got. That, well, I had. Yeah. And that was because of my kidney, but that's irrelevant. <laughs> I, I sidetrack. So this is one of those things where, where as you're listening to all these incidents and all these things that kind of come through, there's two things in effect. One is the uh, the luck in timing in some of these things. And then the secondary effect is stuff that didn't seem to be a boon at the time turned out to be so. And I think construction is one of those that is specifically so. Because after buying the house and being in there for about four years, around the 80s, early 80s. 1980 was the first remodel. Okay, so in 1980, they took the house that I 
believe the original square footage was 1,300? 1,500. 1,500. So 1,500 square feet, four bedroom, two bath. So the front of the house where the living room, kitchen, and dining room were was small. The kitchen was a hallway. The living room was 10 by 15, mm-hmm. maybe. Maybe. Yeah. And then the dining room was a little 8 by 8 yeah. cut out on the other side of the kitchen. So that was the space. And there was a flood. Actually, right? Is that how the financing happened? floods in Well, San the flood Diego was County. because of the uh, hurricane. It wasn't yeah. a hurricane off the coast. It came up the coast. And you had a hurricane the- in California? Yeah. Well, off or the there coast. was some. Well, okay. It came off up from the, the south. Just giant amount. And of giant amount. Of the, we had the rain. remnants of the rain and everything, and it actually washed out the railway and the freeway really? on the other side. I, don't, I thought I told you told you that uh, Interstate Eight got washed out. Yeah, and the railroad railroad, excuse me, that was working got washed out two years in a row. <laughs> and they rebuilt the freeway, but they never. You know, it took them a long time to rebuild. Yeah, the uh, railroad. So with that flood, there was a federal program, mm-hmm. an emergency repair program where they said anybody inside of this, this area can get a super low interest loan. Do you remember what the percentage was? Yes, it was 1%. 1% loan. 1% loan if you had damage from the flood, which our garage had been flooded. Yeah, the water actually the ran water through hit, it. And the, water, <laughs> and the water affected the drywall on the backside of the kitchen. It did? Yes, dear. Oh. Okay, so they had qualifiable damage. <laughs> it's probably something that they didn't need the size of loan they took out. But in the same way that the uh, Paycheck Protection Program or any of these funding pieces come out from the government, if you can take advantage of them, and the rules are written that way, this is fair game we did. in the way we play. And so they did. And with that, what was was that the living room and the kitchen? Yeah, we, we blew out the kitchen. That's when we blew out the whole south end of the house and you were swinging from the rafters. Yeah. Literally. I was very young and I was in a swing Two. from the rafters, not like a, not like an orangutan. Oh. <laughs> um, but that added 400 square feet? Oh, it was only 200. It was only 200. But the 200. Gosh, more. Yeah. And because it was, it was so critical where it went. Yeah. It, it made the, uh, completed the rectangle with respect to the garage and it, doubled the size of the kitchen and it doubled the size of the living room almost. And it's, yeah. and we took out interior walls and it, it helped a lot. And how much of that work did you do yourself? Um, I was still young enough that I had friends, that, most of it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, from uncle Bob helping out and he digging the footings and stuff. And- so my uncle Bob is a construction machine. I don't know 20 year olds that could keep up with him when he was 50. Yeah. I was a 20 year old that could not keep up with him when he was in his forties. So, uh, he's, uh, he was a master carpenter for Kaiser, just extremely accomplished, uh, carpenter and worker. Yeah. And, and we weren't afraid to tackle anything. No. You know, it's like the plumbing. We, we blew out all the plumbing and redid it. Um, and you just learn. And there was no YouTube to tell you how to do it. You ask your buddies. Yeah. Uh, we we did it all. And I had a friend build the cabinets and we installed those. So when you just go after it because you can't afford anything else. Yeah. You know, and that and it worked out great. When you have labor but no money. Correct. You the know, capital sweat is equity. going to 
the cap two by fours two by fours yeah drywall Mm -hmm. um so at this point is is the house reassessed at this point yes yes okay so this is the first tax up yes because we had to have it permitted so we couldn't do it without permits and uh you, fact, would, well, you would have liked to. <laughs> oh, I would have, but the money had to... Well, I sh- guess I shouldn't have said it. You can take that out. Um, <laughs> I'm going to leave that in. Yeah. The, uh, but here, so here's, here's what I will say as we say that, is there's a lot of things where the permits are related to the financing, and so you're going to go through that process. And the other piece of that is that when we've done a lot of the work we've done on family houses or grandparents' houses or any of that, the permits are pulled. The one place it probably isn't is roofs, and I don't think you need a permit for a roof. Well, nowadays you need a permit almost, okay. almost to do anything. Back in yeah, back in the eighties and nineties, whenever no, somebody yeah. needed a new roof, we'd all go to their yeah. house and tear and the old one off and put a new one on. Exactly. And just do it, and you just do it, and you haul on all the family labor, and yeah. you get it done. This is the other benefit of a big family and a strong network. Yep. Yeah, and it, and we helped each other out. We've done. You know, Uncle Bob's room edition and Jerry and Andrews, you know, and Uncle Scott. Anyway, we've. Yeah, pretty much everybody in the family has expanded their house, mm-hmm. their original house, mm-hmm. and then done stuff to their new houses and had assistance in that. Um, let's go to the next remodel because then. So the next remodel was. 90. In 90. And uh, that one we financed because. No. We didn't? Where'd the money come from? It, we what we did was we I had been working um, I got my teaching credential yeah. a little bit later and then we both got our master's degree and the master's money was going in savings it wasn't going into the regular budget and so we did things as we could afford them that's why it took three years we financed it that's, that's all I meant honey is oh. that we oh, paid yeah. for it it wasn't it's, a loan yeah it's fair it was, to say that when you hear we financed it it sounds like you did financial arrangements oh, I too, right so i see yeah that was i think that was I said what mom wrong. heard and that's what i heard too i said it wrong because i said i financed my car oh right as yeah. opposed to i bought my car right you bought it yeah <laughs> but you bought it as you could afford it i we did and we did and on that one you designed it yourself oh yeah that was fun so i drew up all the blueprints <laughs> and i went down the county and uh you know we lived in that back bedroom that was 12 by 15 with a master bath shared a closet and we're going no this we can do better than this and we blew off the roof of the kitchen and garage and well it wasn't the kitchen just over the garage and put up a 400 wait a thousand square foot master bedroom above and that's the one we did over three years yeah the first summer we put up doug footings yeah, because we went out in front. We dug the fittings, put in uh, the the studs. Literally, that was it. We In three months, we got the studs and the roof put on. A second-story roof that Uncle Bob, <laughs> Uncle Scott, and myself, we had them built, the trusses, and they brought them over. And Uncle Bob was hanging like a monkey. Yeah. You were talking earlier. He, he hung up there on the top, and, and Scott that, and I handed them to him. And that second story... Because it took so long, even in San Diego, it rained sometimes. And so we had <laughs> nights where we had thunderstorms roll through and all hands on deck to cover the floor with tarps while well, we were We wrapped it one time because yeah. the monsoons came down from Alpine. Yeah. And so did Uncle Scott. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so 
calling in all those favors, putting that all together, it was three years where during the week my dad would putts and kind of get stuff ready so that on Saturday and Sunday when people were available, they'd come over and it was all the things that needed more than two sets of hands. Mm-hmm. And it was phenomenal to watch it being done. But it also shows one of the ways that you can kind of creep around inside the investment space is where you're going, we're not doing this for the investment. We're doing this for us. Right. It strengthens the investment. It strengthens the Illinois property. But you're not making financial choices for the future of the value of that property. Something I want to stress is that they're still in this house now, have no plans to sell it, aren't going anywhere. They made their perfect house from a dark hallway with a flashlight. Yep. And I think that's pretty phenomenal for primary property. Right. And it's very rare now where somebody doesn't step to another house, step to another house. Yeah. We came real close, but we didn't do that. Well, that was one of the things that we decided we talked about at the very beginning of this is that rather than when I started, when we both got our master's, we didn't move to a bigger house. And a couple of times before we had kind of thought about it and then we're like, no, we like where we live and we can fix this house. So the total investment in the house, uh, the second room addition was a thousand square feet upstairs and it was around thirty thousand dollars to to. This is in the mid nineties. This is ninety four to ninety seven. No, ninety to ninety three. Ninety to ninety three. Gotcha. Okay. Because and, you got you got you and Jesse got to choose between the old master <laughs> yeah. bedroom with its own bath or the bigger bedroom. I got the bigger bedroom. She got a bathroom. Both I sometimes happy. used her bathroom. That's, <laughs> that'll teach her. Uh, so so this is the story of of that house, right? So that house is now at a point where it's. It's more than doubled in size. It's almost trebled in size. It's, we overbuilt. It's, yeah, you're it's definitely the biggest house on the street. Yeah. And everybody said we were crazy for overbuilding in the area. And I said, I'm going to die in this house. <laughs> yeah, you know? I'm not worried about I'm that. I'm not worried about that. It's yeah. somebody else's problem for the overbuilding. Yeah. So they get there, they set it up, and it's not only 3,000 square feet now, 3,500? About 28. 28. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, 2,800 so square feet. So a little bit more, like two and a half times its original size. And then it's paid off early. So it's paid off in 22 years. And then when the opportunity came to, after my grandmother passed and sit there and talking about inheritance and splitting up my grandmother's house, my parents were in a financial position where you guys could take equity out of your house, cheaply financed, and buy it off 3%, of your, 3% your brothers loan. and sisters. 3% loan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it wasn't that much. It was enough to pay them off. What was your hesitancy about holding on to the house, mom? I didn't. I had just paid off. We had our house paid off and we didn't have any house payment. And now we were going to have a mortgage again. And I was, and at the time I did not know anything about, you know, anybody living in the house and how to take care of it. And if they ruined it and if they did this and if this happened. And so I was worried about the what ifs instead of just okay take care of it as it comes yeah so the hardest part was taking out a loan again another mortgage and i think that mentality as our listeners know is is it it you have to be comfortable in your investments and you have to be comfortable in your space and so if you're not comfortable in that situation i don't know if you should do it Right. And I know that when we, when we discussed this, I was very much on the side of keep the house. Mm -hmm. It's a cash flow. It's cash flow positive right now. 
Um, right, and it and it always it, we've always been able to take care of it and do the upgrades that needed and put a new roof on it and take the trim the trees and fix the plumbing and yeah. some of the issues that it's had, and so we've been really fortunate again with the renter that we have, and it's not. It makes enough money to take care of the house, and we, there's a little extra to do the big things when yeah. they need to be done. And so, looking back, I'm glad that we did it, and we have it for our grandkids. Yeah. You know, for you, you and Jesse both have your homes, but the grandsons, you know. It, yeah, you missed out, son. Now the kids get. Yeah, out. Okay. Well, it's in trust, which is what helps. You know, uh, that way you can keep. Pro, you know the. Well, so this is a good point to pivot because I want to talk about the extraordinary privilege I have being your kid. Oh, thank you. And that's twofold. One is I, you guys are amazing. You've been phenomenal parents, but the other one is there's a financial windfall to being your children. (laughs) (laughs) And this comes in two ways. And this is something that my dad and I were talking about yesterday, but I went away to college in San Francisco. And when I graduated and came back, I got a a grown up big boy job instead of um, waiting tables and bartending, which are grown up big boy jobs. I just had a desk job for the first time. It was really strange because having a desk job, you go, gosh, I work so much less <laughs> than I did when I was working tables or when I was bartending. But it's that's considered, you know, the the transition to office and salary instead of hourly and tips is a huge financial safety net where you go, okay, I know how much I'm going to make. I feel more like I'm going to budget and not go, well, I need to make this much money tonight. The The direction pivots. So I come back from San Francisco, I, I get a job, an office job, and I have salary and benefits and all that going on. But I'm, I'm living with my parents because I came back home. On the plus side, it's my parents and I in the house, so there's plenty of room. <laughs> I mean, we don't bump into each other much. Um, then I'm saving to buy a home. And as I'm saving to buy a home, I'm right at the limits of what I could buy. And this is right after six, seven, eight. I was lucky enough to have been in school for the collapse and didn't know anything about the ability to buy. Knowing myself, I may have bought and had one of those awful loans. I might have done that. Um, I tend to be riskier in my investments. I tend to be more uh, confident in my ability to make it work out in the end. And I think that's partly because you guys have provided such a safety net for me that I go, I'll try. What's the worst that'll happen? (laughs) I got to ask my parents for help. Yeah, That's huge. (laughs) Yeah, that's huge. So I moved back home saving up for first property. And the first property I bought, I finally got to the point where I'm like, oh, the economy just collapsed. I have a stable job. Prices are coming down. Let's go look. So in 2008, I was looking around and they just put in the, I think it was $7,000. There was a zero interest loan. You pay back $500 each year in your taxes. I'm like, cool. So I buy a house. I'm going to get a check and I can do this. But I didn't have enough of a credit history nor did I have enough of an income to qualify for the properties that were available. So the first property I ended up buying was a $250,000 house about a mile out of downtown San Diego that was built in 1951. So right around the time, uh, the quicker road property was probably built. Yeah. So, so it was built around 1951, three bed, one bath, one car garage, 920 square feet, tiny crawl space underneath, pretty beat up. But my parents co-signed. I was able to get into that one. And I lived there for several years before I went away to grad school. 
and I, I switched and went away to grad school to kind of shift my career prospects. While I was away, I went, well, I don't want to give this house up. I'd like to be able to move back to San Diego. And so we rented it. And renting that house was an extreme roller coaster. I had either the best tenants or the worst tenants. Um, I had tenants that were there for about a year, stopped paying rent, and I was in New York, so it was really hard for me to really do much to enforce that except threaten eviction. And then I called the lawyer and talked to him. It was going to be like five grand even to get the process started. So I'm like, crap, can I get them to just move out? Finally convinced them to move out, move on. And then we get to the house and we'd done a ton of work on it when we first bought it. We gutted the bathroom and put new tile, new tub. It, it's a, it was a great bathroom. It had two shower heads. Um, we put, um, do we put laminate flooring then? Mm -hmm. You put laminate so. flooring through the whole thing, yeah. painted the inside, um, put a new roof on it. We didn't do that. We hired that. Yeah. We that we I don't remember getting on the roof. <laughs> So we did all that stuff, and then these people just kind of destroyed it. They they kicked in the front of the washing machine. They had all the screens were ripped out. We put dual pane windows in it. All the screens were ripped out, and the, they kicked holes in the wall and patched them with concrete. It was bizarre. And do you want to talk about when you? Because I was in New York, so my dad was the one that went and found it. Yeah, in that condition. Yeah, I walked through it, and it was a nightmare. All I could see is dollar signs and having to gut it. Uh, you know, on the paint for. On the floor. Anyway, it, it was a mess and we almost had to start over. Yeah. I came home for a week. Mm -hmm. I came home for a week and in a week we were able to pretty much turn it around and get it to where we could show it again and got the string of tenants after that were much better. Yes. Uh, to the point where the, the last tenant I had was was fixing up the yard, was taking care of the place. They never called. It was a, it was very much in a Jamie situation. They were very they good. They were very good. And then in 2020, the pandemic hit, and they both were out of work. Yeah. So we sat there looking at it going, well, crap, what are we going to do now? <laughs> um, and I'd over that period of time, I'd accrued enough. Uh, okay, so while I was renting that house out, I had moved from New York to Vegas. I could have gone back to San Diego, but San Diego had the same problem as New York for me. It's that there was no jobs that matched the necessary income to pay for student loans, pay for housing, kind of start building a life. Moving to Vegas, I had friends here. I came and stayed on a couch with them. And within two weeks, I had a two bedroom apartment for less than a thousand dollars a month. I had a job. I was making money. Like it, it worked really easy here. And so in 2013, after I moved here, a couple years later in 2015, I went, okay, I'm ready to buy a house. But in looking at it, my work history and my credit were such, and my, my partner at that time, that we couldn't qualify on our own. We couldn't even qualify. So again, a benefit of being my parents' children, they bought the house. It was entirely in their name. And then we lived there for two years and got our stuff together and then signed it over and did the the quick claim and moved the deed over and refinanced it and put the mortgage in our name. So all of that stuff happened, but the reason we were able to get in was because the parents that I have and what they've done prior to that in their lives. So what makes you guys so I, I know that I'm your kid and so that's part of it, but what makes you guys so giving and so comfortable doing that? For me, who I know I've messed up sometimes in 
in my financial behavior. So <laughs> how do you, so do you guys have that conversation and kind of go, no, no, if, <laughs> it's if, in our core. If, okay. if the you kids know. need help, the kids get help. That's right. It's, it's called, it's just, you love your children unconditionally. Yeah. And not that we would have just supported you and expected, but we all, we always expected you guys to work, which you always did Yeah. from the time you were very young, you threw papers at 12 mm -hmm. and started working at rallies burgers at 16 mm -hmm. and your sister babysat and was a nanny and worked her way through college. So it wasn't like we just gave you whatever you needed, but we were investing in you. <laughs> no, that's, that's how we, we viewed but it. But we wanted you to have a life and we wanted you to have, you know, it was really, really tough for us because there was no safety net. Right. There was our parents both. We made. were our parents' safety net. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we grew up being safety nets. Yeah. We both. That's true. In, in, from both sides. Do you know, this did part, you right? know the end of my, in 1970 when my accident, that the end of my settlement went to save Rainaway? Yeah. Okay. So we were always safety nets. Yeah. So what, and that's just what we did. Yeah. So what my dad's talking about there is is they called you guys the sandwich generation for a while, right? Because yeah. the the boomer population that comes after the greatest generation mm. is inheriting this kind of benefit that was given to World War II veterans, and it gives them a stable spot to jump off of. And then the economy just roars for a while, and so puts everybody in this good spot. And then the generation X, Y millennials come along after it. And those two generations are in this kind of rough economic environment. And so my parents were supporting in both directions, both their parents yeah. and us. It just worked out that way. Yeah. You know, it's, but we talked about this. It, it's great because it set our values yeah. and that's why we do. And that's who we are. And that's why we're, we were great teachers and not to blow smoke, but that givingness worked out in our classrooms too. It's just who we are. Yeah. Kids, our kids come first, whether they're our students or you. Hmm. <laughs> uh, have we ever, have I ever talked about licky rats with you guys, the psychological experiment? No, no, I see blank. So I'm going to run through this because I think this is very germane to how you guys developed how grandma and grandpa's developed and how Jesse and I developed. And that's, they, there's, they observed that in the wild rats, as they grow up, tend to be very nervous and stay in small locations or they're very adventurous and they go out and they try new things. And so they did some lab experiments and they found that the main contributor to that was how much time the mother rat spends licking the baby rats. Oh. And so if they're in a place where there's a lot of danger and food is scarce and mom has to be away mm -hmm. from fighting stuff off to finding water, to finding a safer spot to live, to bringing food home, those rats grow up and are like nervous. They won't venture out very far. They kind of go, okay, I got to be worried. Right. <laughs> and if you're in a little rat paradise where you found a, a dumpster that you live behind and there's plenty of food and plenty of shelter and you don't have uh, rat poisons and things coming around you, you spend a lot of time with kids and literally licking them clean. And there's chemicals in the brain that get influenced by that. And those rats are like, oh, what's over there? What's over there? What's over there? So I, I think that that is, it's not a far leap to go, hey, the I'm a safer. Rat licker, huh? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
You just described what happened to your grandpa, my dad. Yeah. And what happened to me, you know. I picked teaching because it's very solid. Your grandpa jumped from job to job and had to come to Southern California. And now you're all over the place and wound up here in Las Vegas. I mean, and I'm still in the same house I was in yeah. in the 70s. So yeah. I understand what you're saying. Yeah. And Mom, I'm not calling you a rat liquor. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying. I know, but I know what you mean because. Yeah. It makes sense. Yeah, it does. It does make sense. So we study rats to find out what we're going to do. Yep. And I, for the people listening at home, where this is relevant to you is try and recognize what kind of investing style you have. Because what we've talked about over this last hour and then in prior calls is these very different investment strategies. And two people can look at the same investment with the same underlying knowledge, but have different levels of comfort with it. And a huge part of that comes from what's happened to them in the past with their investments and how they've been kind of put together in that investment world. And so my approach to property is different than my parents' approach to property than to their parents' approach to property. And, and that's kind of, I think, the, the big message to take from this is that as you listen to us and we're talking about this, one of the reasons that we've been able to develop this generational wealth and kind of put ourselves in a spot where I'm able to have my parents help me out co-signing and my parents helping me out with that house is from the behaviors that they did. And so if you are in a position where you're very conservative and don't want to go too risky, you don't have to, and you can still do these little pieces where you hold on to any property in the family, pay stuff off, and you can enable the next generation to be a more adventurous investor, homeowner, and engaged person in the, in the kind of economic market. And I mm -hmm. think that's where, that's, the, that's what I want you guys to take away from all of this, is that there's different investment styles. Find the one that matches you for property investment, even just for home ownership. You might not need to manage a property ever. But your kids might need to manage your property so that you can be comfortable. It could even be that you don't need care or a hospice, but you wanna go live in the villages in Florida. And if you're gonna do that, you gotta pay for it. And if you have a rental, that's a great way to pay for it. Do you guys have any parting thoughts for our listeners? No. Nope. <laughs> I'm glad that we could share and I'm very proud of you. Oh. <laughs> I'm going to make that the bumper for all of my episodes. I'll make it my <laughs> ringtone on my phone when you call. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for listening to the Poplar Propcast this week. I'm Justin Liberty. It's been a great time having you all here with me. It's been a great time having my parents with me. Guys, you want to say goodbye to the listeners at home? Bye. Bye, listeners. <laughs> hope the family doesn't listen. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and again, if you need to avail yourselves of property management services, you can find out what we offer at poplar.home slash pod. That's poplar.home slash pod. Thank you very much and have a great day. Bye.